Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, a message from our great and our sovereign Lord. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin reading at verse 14. Hear the word of God. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. There is that phrase that uh, Pastor Durham talked about again. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to submit to it and to reverence it. And I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach it and this your people, to hear it and live it out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the things I like about the book of Acts is that it confronts the status quo passivity that you find in so many churches. But on the other hand, it also confronts uh, the kind of, um, oh, what would you call it, rigid dogmatism. Uh, that is anything but passive, that's sometimes rather rabid, yeah, that you find in some circles as well. And we Reformed people are not exempt from such criticism. In fact, uh, some of the most arrogant claims with regard to preaching, I think, have come out of Reformed circles. Um, we're going to be looking at the Sermon of Peter over the next uh, two or three weeks. Actually, I'll be gone one of those weeks, but uh, uh, there are uh, so many people that uh, have caused controversy in reform circles in recent years, I thought I needed to at least talk a little bit about the methodology of Peter's preaching. Uh, we're going to be looking at the content of it. We're not going to get real far today in his sermon. But a little bit about the methodology because of the controversies and the divisions that have begun to arise in various denominations. Uh, I think the Scripture gives a whole lot more liberty in this area of preaching than many people are uh, uh, want to give. And actually, even though these debates have heated up in the last 25 years, and they're in not just reform circles, they're in many circles, uh, you can see hints of some of these debates uh, in a previous generation. For example, uh, Charles Finney looked at the preaching of Jesus, drew some very valid conclusions for his own preaching, and he said, and I quote, it is the way Jesus Christ preached and it is the only way to preach. Now, much as I like uh, Finney's method, and it's a very valid, it's a very biblical method, it was not the only way that Jesus preached. Uh, he had variety in his preaching, and it is certainly not the way that Peter preached in this chapter or uh, in the next chapter. And we have a constant tendency toward legalism. I've actually asked some of these uh, dogmatists on preaching. Now, which sermons in Scripture follow the method that you're talking about? And this is particularly one uh, uh, viewpoint. And every time I've asked this, they've kind of drawn a blank and uh, 
they say, well, there are scriptural principles, and they talk about theoretical principles that they've gotten from uh, some book, but they cannot point to any one scripture because these books that they've been looking at that so dogmatically say this is the only way to preach have not examined the Old Testament preaching or the New Testament preaching uh, like some authors, Jay Adams has, and John Carrick, and others have done so. But most of the books have been far more restrictive than the Bible is. Uh, they just don't see the, the, the variety. I had a professor of preaching at Westminster Seminary who insisted the only valid way of preaching is the synthetic method. And we had to learn it, or we would have flunked our courses, so I learned how to preach the synthetic way uh, uh, you know, quite well. And it's a valid way. It's a, it's a method of preaching uh, the scriptures that I think is, is biblical, but it is not the only method of preaching. Peter does not use it here. Now, perhaps the most arrogant claims have been made by people like James Dennison and Michael Horton and uh, Sidney Gradenus, who say that the redemptive historical method of preaching is the only legitimate way of preaching. In fact, some of them uh, say that they resist anybody being able to be ordained in their presbytery unless they restrict their preaching uh, to that methodology. And yet, uh, you find in the Old and the New Testaments an incredibly rich diversity of preaching methods. In fact, one preacher will sometimes use a totally different method on this occasion than he does on this one because of different people that he's preaching to or a different goal that he has or different subject material that he is dealing with. And so I want to just give you a tiny glimpse into the method here. I'm not going to uh, go really in depth uh, that Peter uses. Notice in verse 16, Peter quotes Joel. Then he applies what Joel 2 says to what's happening at Pentecost. And he does not feel obligated to stick to one text of Scripture like the expository-only uh, preachers mentioned. Now, don't get me wrong. Expository preaching is by far my favorite method of preaching. Uh, I love it. Uh, but there are times like... Um, two out of the last three weeks where I have felt that it would be easier for you to understand if I deviated from that method uh, for, uh, slightly. And here, Peter is using a different method. He comments some on the text, then he moves on to Psalm 16 and verses 25 and following. Then he appeals to Psalm 132 and verse 30. Then Psalm 16 again in verse 31. And Psalm 68, 18. Then Psalm 110 verses 34 through 35, and then he ties back into the passage he started with, Joel chapter 2, when he gets to verse 39. And so what this is, is this is a thematic sermon that jumps off from a text, but it's not an expository method or a textual method or a synthetic method, um, or it's not analytic. And so um, this is just one thread of analysis that you could go into. There's several other forms of analysis that we could look through to see what is the methodology that he was uh, using. And I'm not going to bore you with that. If I was teaching seminary students, we'd go in-depth into this passage. We'd go in-depth into several of the other sermons uh, that are men mentioned. But if you were to study the methods of preaching that were used in the book of Acts, then compare it to Hebrews, which is explicitly called a sermon you would find out that the apostles don't know how to preach very well, <laughs> if these theories are correct. And what's even sadder, that Jesus Christ did not know how to preach very well, if their theories uh, are correct. Uh, many redemptive historical method advocates completely dismiss the textual preaching of Charles Spurgeon, 
as well as topical, synthetic, doctrinal, the expository preaching of Calvin. In fact, they thought Calvin was a moralist. They say it's, um, it's unbiblical, uh, which to me is a very surprising claim. They say it is uh, fragmented. The reason they say that is because it doesn't show the scope of redemptive historical uh, history from Genesis through to the time of the cross. Well, that's great, you know, if uh, you do that once in a while, but after you hear about 20 of those sermons, they all start sounding alike because you're constantly tracing this redemptive history through. They say it is moralistic because you are exhorting people to change, to do something. They say it's not Christ-centered because in, in expository, you don't read into the text Christ every single passage. Obviously, everything is lived out through grace, but these are some of the of the names that they give. And when I have approached them, my response is, well, it's too bad that Jesus didn't uh, know how to preach, you know, very well. It's too bad he had so much moralism in the Sermon on the Mount. It's too bad he had such doctrinal sermons in the Olivet Discourse and so much exhortation and imperative. Uh, It's too bad that Hebrews, which is explicitly called a sermon, would get an F grade in many seminaries today based on their homiletic procedures. And the reason for that is because it doesn't stick to one theme, which many people insist. You've got to have one theme that you're hammering with three points. It doesn't stick to one theme. It's got all kinds of themes, and it's got all kinds of uh, rabbit trails that it follows, and it's got all kinds of uh, applications. Uh, Then if you start adding Christ sermons and the Old Testament sermons, you will find that there is an incredible diversity that the Lord has allowed in the area of preaching. Some of the sermons have all kinds of illustrations. Others have zero illustrations. Some use stories. Others emphasize doctrine. But every single sermon, so far as I have been able to analyze, every single sermon has what Greenville professor John Carrick calls the indicative-imperative mix, which I find so ironic because the redemptive historical preaching, most of them, are so opposed to the imperative being in there, so opposed to it, and yet every sermon has that. In the Bible, there's always teaching. That's the indicative. And there's always a challenge to change your behavior to apply this teaching. That's the imperative. And you see the same thing here in this chapter. In verses 14 through 39 you have the imperative, I mean the uh, indicative, and then you have the imperative in verse 40, which Luke says consisted of many more words than is what what is recorded here. Now, some of the sermons, like Hebrews, you've got the indicative and the imperative all mixed up together. There's constantly application all the way through. And yet, unfortunately, many who advocate the redemptive historical method of preaching say that there should be zero application and uh, zero imperative. In fact, some of them mock at that as being unbiblical. It's just weird to me, very, very strange. Now, they're not the only legalists. I find it interesting that Luke, as I mentioned, um, who wrote Hebrews, instead of having a three-point sermon, he had a pile of points. Instead of having one theme that he traces through, so the whole congregation can be, you know, locked into that one theme, he's got all kinds of themes that go through. Uh, That's a no-no in preaching nowadays. Uh, Brian Chappell has a book on preaching which brings some very helpful criticisms, I think, to some of the modern legalisms, but he has his own legalisms. Um, He has his own unbiblical rules of preaching that simply do not occur in every sermon in the Bible. 
And so if you have been reading, I know some of you have come to me and say, you know, I've read this article that says uh, such and such about preaching. If you've been reading critiques or magazine articles that say this is the only way to preach, ask yourself this. Do the biblical sermons follow the advice of this expert? If they don't, you can just wave them goodbye. You know, you do not need to listen to their legalism. One of the oft-repeated lines that is simply not biblical is that every passage of Scripture that you preach must focus, must focus, not just be tied in with, but must focus on Jesus and the cross. That, is, that sounds spiritual, you know, sounds like uh, good advice, but it is simply... Uh, not true. It is eisegesis. It's reading something into the text rather than exegesis, reading it out. John Frame has some excellent critiques of this uh, where we artificially impose on the passage things that are not there. And so his advice is, and John Ad J. Adams' advice, and, and uh, John Carrick is, let the text preach itself. And there are quite a number of people who do this a whole lot better than I do, so this is not, uh, I'm not going down this... Um, trail to excuse my poor pre preaching, but I just want to make sure that when you guys read stuff out there, don't believe everything that you read in Reform magazines just because they're Reformed. There is some legalism that's crept into the Reform circles in the last uh, 25 years. Now, that's a poor way to start a sermon, but um, let's start going through this passage verse by verse, and let's start at verse 14. And today, I'm going to be using an exegetical or an expository preaching method. But Peter, standing up, notice that it says that he was preaching while he was standing up. Now, you could draw the conclusion, preachers always have to stand, but then you'd have to remember that Jesus preached sitting down in Luke 4, verse 20, and Luke 5, verse 3. Uh, I have read people, articles who have said that's the way they always did it in the synagogues. He stood to read the Scripture, and then he sat down, and they talk about all of the symbolism that goes into that, and they make that into an imperative. Our hearts are constantly prone to legalism. We don't like the liberty with which God has set us free. And so I would say, no, sitting is allowed, but standing is allowed. Peter stood, as did the preachers in Nehemiah chapter 9. So it says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, this indicated a solidarity with the church leadership. They were behind him. They were supporting him in his preaching. Verse 14 goes on, raised his voice and said to him, said to them, excuse me, now, the raising of the voice may have been a part of his technique. I think it was probably just because there was such huge crowds he had to speak to. Um, but then the word said there conveys a solemnity. Now, there are a number of commentators who point out that said is a very weak way of translating the Greek term. Dictionary says it means, quote, to speak seriously with gravity, a word often used for prophetic inspired utterance, unquote. And so what this does is it highlights the importance of preaching. It's not simply sitting down and informally sharing uh, doctrines and passages of Scripture with one another. Uh, it is representing God to the people. This word conveys an authority. He stands as a representative of God, and he is speaking forth uh, to the people what God has to say. The next phrase, men of Judea, refers to the residents of Israel. And then all who dwell in Jerusalem is a phrase to those who temporarily dwell there, because the same words used up in verse 5, people from every nation had gathered, and it says they were dwelling in Jerusalem. Well, they were dwelling for that feast, 
uh, that feast time. So it's addressing the whole crowd, locals as well as the foreign Jews and proselytes. He says, let this be known to you and heed my words. Now, what gave him the right to speak so authoritatively? Well, I would say it's his office and the fact that he is speaking God's words. This is not his own authority. It was God's authority, and therefore he could demand that the people submit to God's message. That is not arrogance. That is simply being a spokesman for God. It's not his own authority. It's God's authority that he is addressing. And to this day, the only authority that any pastor has is the authority of God's Word. His opinions don't count for anything. It's the authority of God's Word. Now, that is an awesome authority, and it's an authority that gets preachers into trouble all the time. Uh, And that's what happened with these apostles. They spoke with such authority, it got them a good drubbing, a good beating in Acts chapter 4. Preaching is not for the faint-hearted, because preaching makes demands that no mortal man would dare to make on his own. Uh, It is demands that come from the throne of God. It calls for commitment that requires courage. It mandates that people listen. And the only way that people would be able to do that is if they had a sense. Yes, God's calling is upon their lives. In verse 15, he quickly dispenses with the ridiculous claim in verse 13 that they were drunk. Verse 15 says, "...for these are not drunk, as you suppose." since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, third hour, the way that they count is from 6 a.m. being hour one. So this would be 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that uh, breakfast was at the fourth hour. So that would be one hour later. And they always went into the temple and did their sacrifices before they had breakfast. So in effect, what Peter is saying is, you guys have got to be kidding You're saying we're all drunk? Sure, if there was one or two drunks out there, that might be understandable. We haven't even had breakfast yet. And lunch is four hours away. And you're saying there's over a hundred people here that are drunk? Uh, That's a really lame excuse. Verse 16, But this is what was spoken by Joel, uh, the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Peter is saying that Joel's prophecy has reference to the last days, He's saying it is now fulfilled in what was happening in Pentecost being poured forth. And so the implication is that Peter is living in the last days, right? Now that is surprising, uh, perhaps to many people, but it was very well known to the Jews. Ezekiel 38, Daniel 2 are two passages that indicate that the last days included the Maccabees' war and other events leading up to uh, the first century A.D., they knew that they were living in the last days. This was common knowledge to, uh, to the Jews. And there are too many people who automatically apply all last days passages to our time as if we're living in the last days. We are not. They were living in the last days. Uh, it was the last days of Israel as a nation. It was the last days of the temple that Peter was preaching in. And uh, its days were numbered. It was the last days of the priesthood, of the Old Covenant, of the sacrificial system, of the ceremonial laws. In fact, it was the last days of virtually everything that the Jews had grown accustomed to living through. They knew that in the last days there there was going to come a time where everything was going to be changed. And so I want you to flip with me to several scriptures which help to clarify this term, the last days. 
Because if you don't understand that phrase, uh, it's going to mess up your eschatology. If you have it clear in your mind, all kinds of things will begin to fall into place. Turn first to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews, as I mentioned earlier, is a... Some people believe it was written by Paul. I believe it was written by Luke. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by the Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Then verse 3 indicates that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Verse 5 indicates Psalm 2 is fulfilled, which declares that Messiah is going to be placed on his throne. He's going to begin the process of subduing all nations to himself. Then verse 13 quotes Psalm 110, which says, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, all of those things were prophesied to occur in the last days. And verse 2 says, Jesus spoke. He ministered past tense in those last days. That's not something future to us. That's something in the past. Now, turn next. Uh, after Hebrews to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, if the days of Jesus were the last times, then you would expect, according to the Old Testament prophecy, that they would see the destruction of the old temple and a replacement with a new temple. There's a destruction of the old Israel and a replacing of it with a new Israel. Well, if you look here in the next verses, you'll see that's exactly what goes on. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, speaks of this new temple made with spiritual hands, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then in uh, verses 9 through 10, it speaks of the establishing of a new Israel and a new nation. And so, yes, these were the last times, according to Peter. By the way, when Jesus quoted the Scripture and said that he was the chief cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, one of the reasons it made the Pharisees so ticked off is they knew that the prophecy indicated that there would be a doing away with this temple that was so beautiful and that they loved. In fact, the temple only got finished being built just shortly before the war went and destroyed it. Uh, but anyway, that was one of the reasons it took them off. They knew in the last days it would be destroyed. Turn next to James chapter 5. It's right before this. James chapter 5 is addressing real people living in his own day. And he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. They were about to go through a seven-year tribulation of utter misery from 66 through 74 A.D. He says, your riches are corrupted. Notice it's an already established condition. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Notice the present tense. They have already heaped up treasure, past tense, heaped up treasure in the last days. They were living in the last days. He goes on, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. And if you keep reading, you realize James is talking to people who were alive right then. 
And yet verse 3 says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. The last days is not the time we are living in. It was the last days of the old covenant, of the temple, of the priesthood. And there are a few other passages that I've collected into uh, a short handout. I've got about 30 copies of that uh, for those of you who are interested in my briefcase. And showing how every time that phrase, the last days, is used, it's a reference to uh, the days leading up to 70 A.D. And that's true even of the two that appear not to be, 1 Timothy 4, where Timothy was told not only that there would be apostasy in the last days, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, but he mentions the doctrines, warns Timothy to avoid them, and warns him to warn his people to avoid them. How could they avoid those doctrines if they were not in the last days? Second Timothy 3, Paul warns Timothy about deceivers who would come in the last days. He mentions exactly what the doctrines are and the practices are, and then he warns Timothy, and from such people turn away. Uh, Genesis 49 says Messiah would come out of Judah in the last days. That's a reference to his birth. Now, I'm not going to go over any of the others, but with that as a background, turn back to Acts chapter 2, and I want you to see how this first section we're going to be looking at today was both a glorious promise and an incredible warning to Israel. First came the promise. He says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Uh, now, this was not just the fulfilling of Joel, but this was also a fulfilling of a prophecy by John the Baptist that they would be baptized uh, with the Spirit. And in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be seeing later on in his sermon, we're going to be seeing what an incredibly glorious promise the baptism of the Spirit is. But I do want you to notice God's mode of baptism is not by immersion, but it's by pouring. He says, I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Now, we do try to be flexible and not legalistic. Uh, even though we think uh, baptism by immersion is irregular, we think it is valid. I was immersed, but we think it's a, a valid uh, baptism. But I do not think it's the best mode. I think the best mode is that which points to, symbolizes the baptism of the Spirit. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Water baptism is supposed to symbolize spirit baptism. What's the mode God used? Look at chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The action is with the Spirit, not the person moving down into the Spirit. And so we baptize with pouring to symbolize the fact that we are saved not by our action, not by our works, but it's by God's action, by His works, right? It's by His grace. Um, we speak of it as being monergistic salvation. Only God's the one acting, not synergistic. And so it's a beautiful symbolism. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Here's the baptism with fire. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They weren't thrown down into the fire, the fire came down and rested on their heads. Look at Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this, which you now see and hear. So He poured out the Spirit, just like we pour water on converts and their families. Now look at chapter 10 and verse 44. 
chapter 10 and verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit, notice this, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit, notice this, had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Then look at verse 44, 47. Excuse me. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Water baptism should be parallel to spirit baptism. And the Greek word for forbid water means to hold back water. The Greek indicates the movement is with the water towards the person. Now, all of that is a symbol that we're saved by grace. Uh, no one deserves it. No one can earn it. It is given. Uh, by the way, and this was always the way the Jews baptized, and there is an entire Baptist denomination. Some churches left the denomination when they made this decision, but they have been so convinced by this mode that they have left immersion. They don't baptize babies, but uh, they do baptize by pouring. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty interesting. Now, Acts 2.17 says, God will pour out the Spirit on all flesh. Does that mean He's going to baptize uh, believers and unbelievers? No. The word all in the Scripture frequently, in fact, most frequently, means all without distinction, not all without exception. Does that make sense? And so, in other words, it's all kinds, all types, old and young, male and female, Jew and Gentile, all flesh, that kind will have the Spirit poured out upon them because later on, he says, uh, there needs to be faith. Then comes the establishment of a prophetic band. And I'm not going to go into those uh, two verses because we spent a lot of time on that in an earlier sermon. We looked at the foundation of the church. We saw in Ephesians 2 that the foundation was a revelational foundation. It was made up of um, the apostles, prophets, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so there's a wealth of revelation that God gives to the foundation of this new Israel, this new church. So verse 17 goes on to say, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Now, in which days is those days referring to? Well, we've just seen in verse 17, it's the last days of the Old Covenant. It's in the days leading up to Jerusalem's destruction. And actually, that's hinted at because I believe verses 19 through 21 is talking about the, uh, God's judgment against Israel. Now, we're, hold that in your mind. Just keep your objections for a moment in your mind. Uh, we're going to be looking at that, at that shortly. But just remember from the previous sermon, we established, I think beyond any shadow of a doubt, that all inspired revelation, all prophets and all apostles were closed off in 70 A.D. when Israel was cast away. We saw Isaiah 8 shows that. Daniel 9 shows that. There's other passages that talk about vision and prophets being sealed up, closed off, no more new revelation uh, being given. Um, that's why 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, whether there are prophecies, they will cease. Okay, so there's some time in history when prophecies need to cease, and we saw that it's pinpointed at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, it's important for us to not think just because we're not living in the last days, just because 
we can't prophesy that we're somehow gypped. Man, I wish I could prophesy. You know, man, I wish I could live in the last days. No, God has recorded for us everything that was intended to be given by those prophets in the Bible. And so we, those prophets continue to speak to us for all time. The foundation continues to minister until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't think we've been gypped. Uh, we have everything that we need for life and godliness in the scriptures, according to Peter. Or as Paul words it, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, these scriptures are sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. And so really what he's talking about here is an incredible, incredible gift, the gift of foundational revelation. Now, as I said, when, we, uh, when I gave that sermon, the scriptures that I gave that showed the cessation of prophecy, every one of them tied it in with the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think that's hinted at in this passage as well. So let's take a look at verses 19 through uh, 21. Most people assume this has got to be a reference to something at the second coming, at the end of, of history. And actually, we already have hints that can't be the case because verse 21 indicates that after the day of the Lord, there's still time to repent. There ain't no time to repent after the second coming judgment. It's, it's too late at that point. Okay, verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> so what we've got here is we've got signs before the day of the Lord, then you've got the day of the Lord, and then you have the universal spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the whoever, okay? If you look in Joel, you'll see that threefold pattern. Uh, you'll see that there is a long period of history after the day of the Lord in which the Gentiles are being gathered in. So just keep those three in mind, and that's what Peter is following. Now, before we start to look at the miracles, the signs, the wonders that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem, I want to point out that the term, the day of the Lord, does not always refer, in fact, it rarely refers to the end of history. Usually, it's a reference to some judgment that God made in history against some empire or against some nation like Babylon, Egypt, Eden. This one here is the day of the Lord for Jerusalem the people that he was speaking to. But I want you to turn, first of all, to Isaiah 13. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 13. There's 26 times that the day of the Lord phrase occurs. We're only going to look at two or three of them. Now, in this passage, virtually all scholars who are conservatives agree that this was fulfilled over 500 years before the time of Christ. For example, premillennialist J. Barton Payne says, quote, fulfillment in the fall of Babylon to the Medes and Persians in 539 B.C., unquote. Okay, look at chapter 13, verse 1. The burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Then he speaks of an imminent judgment against them. Look, for example, at verse 6. Wait... For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Now today, year 2005, is almost 2,600 years later. And I think on any measurement of time, any judgment that's still future to us could not possibly be said to be at hand, to be near 
to uh, uh, Isaiah when he was speaking about this. It's simply not true to say that the day of the Lord is always a reference to the last day of history. It's a reference to any judgment. Now, somebody might hypothesize, well, maybe theoretically, the second coming could have been imminent in the Old Testament. We just didn't know when it was coming. And I would say, no, absolutely impossible. Because why? The Old Testament prophesied that Jesus had to be born and had to die before there could be a second coming. And if there is any prophecy that must first come before the second coming, the second coming, by definition, is not imminent. Does that make sense? Just logically, it cannot be uh, imminent. And so virtually all all mills, post mills, and pre mills agree this is a reference to 539 B.C. And yet look at the apocalyptic language that's used to describe this destruction of Babylon by the Medes. Look at verses 9 through 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Now, did that literally happen? Perhaps, yes. Um, but whether you take it literally or symbolically, it had to have happened in 539 B.C. Verse 13 is similar. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts. And yet, look at verse 17 at who it is that brings this cataclysmic judgment that shakes the heavens and the earth. It's the Medes. It's the Medes. And by the way, the Medes no longer existed. Uh, too many years later, there was a later day of the Lord that judged the Medes so thoroughly and obliterated their civilization so thoroughly that for generations, liberals claimed that the Bible made a mistake by even mentioning the Medes because there has been no civilization until finally archaeology discovered, wow, I guess there was a civilization of the Medes. Okay, so I'm not going to turn to all 26 times. Let's just look at one more. Jeremiah 46. Jeremiah 46, verse 2. Now, this uh, prophecy here spans from verse 2 through verse 12. And I want you to notice he clearly identifies who the judgment is going to be against. And it's a Pharaoh who was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 46, verse 2. Against Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now look at how he describes this judgment of God in verse 10. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance. And so the capture of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar is the day of the Lord. Why? Because it's a judgment against Egypt. And there are all kinds of examples that could be given. Ezekiel 30 is another day of the Lord, which scholars say, hey, that was against Egypt. And I'm not going to give any more background, but I want you to turn with me with that understanding and look at Acts chapter 2, the same apocalyptic language used of, uh, of uh, Israel in the Old Testament, Babylon, Egypt, Edom is used here. He says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Did that happen over the next 40 years? And I think we'd have to say absolutely yes. There were all kinds of signs and wonders that the Lord performed. And actually, he'd already been performing them. Because if you look at the uh, day of Christ's crucifixion, what you see is that there was um, uh, this three hours of 
thick darkness over all of the earth. There was the, uh, the uh, splitting apart of the rocks, the resurrection of saints from the graves. There was that tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. Um, what are some of the others? There was all kinds of things there. And that probably would have been in their minds. They would have sat through three hours of darkness from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. And here Peter is quoting this passage and saying, before the day of judgment on Israel, there is going to be darkness of the sun. And they're thinking, whoa, maybe that's coming soon. We've already had this. We've already had this happen. Um, then there was all the miracles of Christ and the apostles that they did. But during the next 40 years, there was one sign after another, both miraculous and non-miraculous. And let me just quickly list some of the non-miraculous ones that can be explained scientifically. And then I'll give some that cannot be explained. Jews saw the appearance of comets and eclipses as being very significant. Now, they weren't dummies. They knew you could predict them, that they followed regular order and pattern. They did predict them, but they still saw them as being very significant signs. And there were remarkable, very visible comets like Halley's Comet in AD 39, 54, 60, 64, 65, 66. There was a very rare comet and eclipse pairing in AD 69. There was a rare pairing of a solar and a lunar eclipse in 71 AD, which uh, the Roman governor Pliny said occurred 15 days apart, which itself was remarkable. But the scriptures probably had miraculous signs in mind, uh, not just those kinds of signs. And the Roman, the Greek, and the Jewish historians all record incredible miracles and signs that occurred during those times. In fact, it scared the wits out of the people. And uh, I'm not going to give you all of the signs. There's no way I could go through them. I want to give you six. And I'm going to start with Josephus. And uh, Josephus was a j remarkable Jewish historian. He was a priest. He was also a general in the army. He was captured early on. The Romans allowed him to live. And he was able to ride with the governor, uh, not the governor, with the, um, the general, um, first Vespasian, then Titus, and record the entire history as an eyewitness of what was going on. So he was able to visibly see these things. The first sign, oh, and he calls these manifest portents, all kinds of signs and wonders. First sign was in 66 AD. Two things happened. He, sa he said this, So it was when a star resembling a sword stood over the city Jerusalem and a comet which continued for a whole year. Now, he knew that comets don't continue for a whole year, and he knew that stars don't look like swords, but he, he, he said... They were there, and that's why he called it signs and um, miracles. The second sign occurred in the same year. Josephus said, So again, when before the revolt and the commotion that led to the war, at the time when the people were assembling for the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 8th of the month Xanthius, and that's equivalent to Nisan, at the ninth hour of the night, that's 3 a.m., so brilliant a light shone around the holy altar in the sanctuary of the temple that it seemed to be broad daylight, and this continued for half an hour. And this place that he's describing was perfectly visible from the Mount of Olives where hundreds of thousands of pilgrims had gathered and were camping. And so all of these people saw this bright light for half an hour. There were hundreds of thousands of witnesses. He goes on and he says, By the inexperienced, this was regarded as a good omen. But by the sacred scribes, it was at once interpreted in accordance with later events. And he's describing the destruction of Jerusalem. The third sign occurred six days after sign two. At the Feast of Passover, 
he said this happened. The eastern gate of the inner court, it was of brass and very massive, and when closed toward evening, could scarcely be moved by twenty men, fastened with iron-bound bars on each side. It had bolts which were sunk to a great depth into a threshold consisting of a solid block of stone. This gate was observed at the sixth hour of the night, that would be midnight, to have opened of its own accord. The watchmen of the temple ran and reported the matter to the captain. They came up with great difficulty, succeeded in shutting it. This again to the uninitiated seemed to be the best of omens as they supposed that God had opened to them the gate of blessings. The fourth sign occurred a few days later. Josephus says, again, not many days after that festival, on the 21st of Artemisium, there appeared a miraculous phenomenon passing belief. Indeed, what I am about to relate would, I imagine, have been deemed a fable were it not for the narratives of eyewitnesses for, for the subsequent calamities which deserved to be so signalized. For before sunset, throughout all the parts of the country of Judea, chariots were seen in the air and armed battalions hurtling through the clouds and encompassing the cities. According to Josephus, this was not just seen by a few quacks. Everybody in the whole countryside saw it. In fact, the Romans saw it. And let me give you a, a quote from Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, who says exactly the same thing. Uh, he witnessed this. It says, In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict, of glittering armor. A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. Uh, so Christ was indeed directing the armies of heaven against this city, just as he promised he was going to do. Uh, a third ancient witness who saw, uh, who records this, he didn't see it because he was a couple centuries later, but who had access to first century documents gives some facts that the other two witnesses did not give. He said, for before the setting of the sun, chariots and armed troops were seen throughout the whole region in midair, wheeling through the clouds and encircling the cities. That's Eusebius, the church historian. So that was the fourth sign that God gave of wonders in the heavens. Fifth sign occurred two weeks later. So what's happening here is God is pi piling up warning sign after warning sign that the Jews are just ignoring. He says, moreover, at the feast which is called Pentecost, the priests, and in context there were 24 priests who were witnesses, the priests, on entering the inner court of the temple by night as their custom was, and the discharge of their ministrations reported that they were conscious first of a commotion and a great noise, and after that, of a voice of an army, we are departing from here. Interestingly, the Jewish Mishnah records the same thing from a Jewish perspective and says this is the time that the glory cloud left, the day after Peter preached his sermon. And we do have a third ancient witness for this. It's the Roman historian Tacitus, only where Josephus says the two signs were two weeks apart, he links the two together. But otherwise, it's the same. He says, In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict, of glittering armor. A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving, and in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. Few people placed a sinister interpretation upon this. The majority were convinced that the ancient scriptures, their priests, alluded to the present as the very time when the Orient would triumph and from Judea would go forth men destined to rule the world. So what he was saying is they were totally ignoring the signs that had been given. Now, Josephus, the three Roman 
uh, the, yeah, Roman historians and the uh, Greek historian. Uh, they give many other miracles, signs, and wonders, and I'll maybe uh, uh, give you a couple, uh, but I'm not going to go into depth. I just want to give the summary from Josephus. He says, Reflecting on these things, one will find that God has a care for men, and by all kinds of premonitory signs, shows his people the way of salvation while they owe their destruction to their own folly and calamities of their own choosing. So there were signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth beneath. The next phrase says blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And I think all of you are familiar with the incredible carnage that happened in Jerusalem and all throughout uh, Judea. It was an incredible war. Over two million people were killed and it wasn't just the number that were killed. It was the unbelievable things that happened to them. There was nothing like this that had happened uh, to Israel before. And yes, there was blood and fire and vapor and smoke. Smoke was so thick that uh, you could hardly see at times. The Sea of Galilee was so littered with bodies floating on the surface, you could not see the water. That's how thick uh, it was with uh, floating bodies. This was worse than Rwanda. It was worse than Cambodia. Uh, lakes were filled with bodies like a log jam everywhere. So many bodies had been thrown into the Jordan River that the entire river was red with blood. Very literally, the blood was up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The Jewish historian Josephus said, Galilee was all over filled with fire and blood. Same was said of Jerusalem. Now, this actually may also be a reference to a miraculous sign, not just the blood that was from the literal uh, killing of people there. It may have been a miraculous sign such as Revelation 8 speaks about. That prophecy said, And hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. Now, as puzzling as this is, ancient historians make reference to blood falling from heaven. Several do. According to Fenton Farrar, the Roman historian Dion Cassius reported that blood and fire fell from the sky in 68 A.D. Uh, and this was not the only occasion. Dion Cassius mentions other times. In Livy's History of Rome, Book 42, it mentions a similar time when it was raining blood for three days. Now, I read an article by a secular scientist who says, you know, there's so many witnesses to the blood falling from the sky, you cannot deny it. But he says, we've got to explain it scientifically. So he says, it must have been red dust up in the air mingling with the rain and forming a sludge and making all of the rivers and the lakes uh, blood red. Uh, I read another scientific article that tried to explain it based on what was happening in Naples, Italy. And there's a few other places where red snow, where red uh, rain had fallen down and said that it's snow or rain infused with lichen infusoria, or oscillatory rubescence. Uh, the American Scientist Journal says, many of the tales of this, the descent of showers of blood from the clouds, which are so common in old chronicles, depends, says Mr. Berkeley, the mycologist, upon the multitudinous production of infusorial insects, or some of the lower algae. To this category belongs the phenomenon known under the name of red snow. Now, whatever the case, whether Revelation's describing literal blood or something that looked like blood, this would have been incredibly unnerving to have this experience. And yet the Jews just totally ignore it. They're oblivious, other than the remnant. At one point during the war, Josephus said, 
Quote, the hill on which the temple stood was seething hot and seemed enveloped to its base in one sheet of flame. The blood was larger in quantity than the fire and those that were slain more in number than those that slew them. The ground was nowhere visible. All was covered with corpses. Over these heaps, the soldiers pursued the fugitives. It was an absolutely horrible war, and yet no one could say God did not warn them. Look next at verse 20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Now, I agree with commentators that this is symbolic language that uh, refers to uh, frequently sun, moon, and stars are references to uh, those who are ruling officials. And so I think it's symbolic of the destruction of Jerusalem, but I think it also is literal. And I just don't divide between symbolic and literal. For example, uh, the rock that was smitten by Moses in the wilderness was a symbol that Jesus would be smitten by the Father so that he could give us the Holy Spirit. But there's still a literal rock that was smitten, right? The ten plagues. Some people just explain that away and they say, well, the ten plagues, that's just a symbol that God had the victory over the gods of Egypt. Well, yes, it is a symbol of that, but there were literal plagues as well. And I think that's what's going on here. In fact, I believe that usually, if not always, there's no way I could prove if it's always, but usually, if not always, when God has chosen down through history, even into modern times, to judge an empire, to judge a nation, he has many times preceded it with strange phenomenon in the sky and in the earth. Uh, certainly, the ancient historians uh, mention this preceding the collapse of uh, many nations and, and empires. And let me just give you a couple of examples of that connected with this war. The Roman historian Tacitus said this, Suddenly, in a clear sky, the moon's radiance seemed to die away. This the soldiers, in their ignorance of the cause, regarded as an omen of their condition, comparing the failure of her light to their own efforts, and imagined that their attempts would end prosperously should her brightness and splendor be restored to the goddess. And so they raised a din with brazen instruments and the combined notes of trumpets and horns, trying to bring the sun back. Uh, Tacitus, again, there occurred, too, a thick succession of portents. And then he lists some of the miracles, and this is one. The sun was suddenly darkened, and the 14 districts of the city were struck by lightning. Now, verse 20 indicates that the sun turning dark and the moon turning red had to occur before the war, because it was a warning, right? Had to occur before the war. And there's all kinds of historical examples of this. Luke 23, uh, verse 34, says that from noon until 3 o'clock, there was a thick darkness all over the earth when Jesus was crucified. That was not an eclipse. Eclipses don't last that long. You know, this was a, a wonder in the heavens. And I think that may have been uppermost in these people's minds. And it's interesting that the pagans allude to that event as well. Phallus refers at that, that year, refers to a darkening of the sun from noon and on and says this is an eclipse like no other. Now, Julius Africanus disagrees and he says, man, that can't be an eclipse. Eclipses don't last that long. Uh, Phlegon calls it an eclipse, but acknowledges there has been nothing that has happened like this before. In his Olympiads, Fragment 17, he said, In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, an eclipse of the sun took place greater than any previously known, and night came on at the sixth hour. Okay, sixth hour is noon. 
Night came on at the sixth hour of the day, so that stars actually appeared in the sky, and a great earthquake took place in Bithynia and overthrew the greater part of Nicaea. Now, for stars to appear in the sky, that had to have been incredible darkness that had fallen on the day of crucifixion. It was dark. So that, by the way, rules out overcast sky. That's the way some people say, oh, it must have been a thick uh, cloud cover or something. No, they saw stars, but they didn't see the sun. Totally dark. Dion Cassius records a great many miraculous signs that took place in 45 A.D., including the blotting out of the sun. Uh, the Greek philosopher and biographer Plutarch uh, wrote about something very unusual that happened either during this war or slightly before it. Uh, I read a scientific article that looked at all the eclipses, and they said if Plutarch's referring to an eclipse, it had to be 71 A.D., but I don't think it was an eclipse because he's referring to something that was way too long for an eclipse. Anyway, he says, You will, if you call to mind this conjunction recently, which beginning just after noonday made many stars shine from many parts of the sky. And so that, too, would have been an incredibly dark period of, uh, of day right at noonday. And he goes on, he says, Minerimus, Insidious, Archilochus, Stachorus, besides, and Pindar, these are witnesses who've written the same thing, he says, spoke of midday night falling. And I got that from the Encyclopedia Britannica. And so there's another clear darkening of the sun so thoroughly that the stars are, can be seen. Now, on the phrase, the moon turned into blood, not even premillennialists believe that literal rock is going to turn into literal into literal blood. Now, I did read one crazy article where they said there'd be millions of soldiers on the moon and they're going to have battle and there's going to be blood flowing. It's not going to look red from here, even if there is blood. And that's not turning into blood. That'd be blood on the moon. Uh, so even premillennialists, for the most part, say this can't be taken literally. It's a reference to blood-red color of the moon reported by historians. Almost finished. Verse 20 says, all of this was before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. This was a worse judgment than any Israelite had ever seen before. It was truly the great and awesome day of the Lord. And in God's kindness, he sent Jesus to warn about it. He sent the apostles to warn about it. He sent sign after sign to warn about it. And so verse 21 ends by saying, calling them repentance, it says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice the word whoever. This marks the transition period when it's not predominantly a Jewish church where now they're forced to go into all parts of the world and whoever, the Gentiles, will be coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And Joel goes on to speak of the expansion of that kingdom. And he explicitly contrasts that with only a remnant being saved from Israel. Let me go on to read, and uh, this is the verse right after uh, Acts, two, well, the one Acts 2 quotes. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and get this phrase, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. There was only a remnant of Jews who would listen to Peter's message. And that's why the symbolism of tongues, this was an indicator that now the kingdom was going to go to the Gentiles and there was going to be more and more Gentiles coming to the 
place where finally the fullness of the Gentiles would come in and then all Israel would be saved. And it talks in Joel, the last chapter, about the salvation of the, Gentile, of the Jews. And let me end with three lessons. First lesson is that God continues to deal with nations. This event occurs after the cross of Jesus Christ. And I have talked to so many people who say, with the cross of Christ and the establishment of the new covenant, God's no longer interested in nations. We shouldn't be worrying about nations and politics and the kingdoms of this world. Well, this passage puts the lie to it. God's very interested in what nations do. He's interested in national sins. And so we should not be turning Christianity into a pietistic, individualistic religion. Um, I'm just surprised at how many Christians are just not worried about events uh, in America. Don't think that America is exempt from judgment any more than Israel was exempt from judgment. If you look at, some people say, well, look at how many good Christians there are in America. Well, look at how many good, serious Christians there were in Israel. You read through the book of Acts and you'll find that there were multitudes of Jews who came to a solid knowledge, a solid knowledge of the Lord. And they were more radical than the church in America is. They were still a remnant, and yet God judged. And so I don't think we should have a lackadaisical approach and say, ah, I'm not worried about judgment in America. America deserves judgment every bit as much as Israel deserved it back then. And God is still interested in nations and politics and what they do. Secondly, God wants our preaching to include addresses to nations. Uh, the passage that Peter picks from Joel was not only addressed to Israel, but to the nations who would exist in the new covenant. Next two verses, after the ones that I just quoted in Joel, it says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. Later he says, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. He speaks of multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. They are called to make a decision. They are preached to. And is that not exactly what the Great Commission calls us to do, to preach to nations and to disciple those nations? God's message is not just to Israel. It's to the new covenant nations as well. And by the way, that ought to give us hope. Peter didn't give up. He didn't just say, oh, it's so hopeless, I'm not even going to bother preaching to the nation. No, we should not give up on our nation either. As long as God, you know, as long as there is continued to be preaching, there continues to be hope. Third, what is true of nations is also true of individuals. Apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us will face certain judgment just like Israel did. We individually deserve it just as much as Israel deserved judgment. And uh, we cannot get out of it by our good works. There's no way. It's only through the good works of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have never put your faith in the Lord, call. Do Take verse 21 seriously. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your patience, your incredible patience in dealing with nations. And I pray that you would have mercy upon our nation. Father, you call upon us to repent and believe, and yet unless you grant to the Gentiles repentance, there can be no repentance. Unless you grant to them faith, there can be no faith. And so we call out to you and we say, Father, have mercy upon our nation. Have mercy upon the other nations of this world and draw their hearts to you. You have said to Christ, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So we ask on behalf of Christ that you would grant the nations for his kingdom.
We pray, Father, that you would enable each and every one of us to treasure your word and to follow and to live it out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.